Good morning. Good morning. How many, just a, a quick poll. Uh, how many of you grew up singing that song? Yeah, okay. It wasn't just me and Tim. All right. As an oldie, oldie but a goodie right there. Hey, my name's Scott. I uh, have the honor of serving here as, uh, as lead pastor, and I am so glad you decided to be here today. Uh, we're in week three of a series called If Grace is True, and here's, here's kind of what I'm, I'm hoping happens for you through this series. Uh, we're, what we're doing is we're learning about uh, this, what usually gets grouped as a church word. There, there are a lot of church words, right? Faith, hope, love, uh, theology, grace. Uh, that tends to be a church word, and sometimes church words get put into a different category. Uh, here's what I'm hoping happens for you. That through this series, this moves from being a church word to becoming a life word. This becomes the fuel for how you operate your life. Uh, because when you understand what grace is, it changes things. When it becomes an experience that you have that courses through your mind and through your heart and through your emotions and through your body, uh, it changes things. So what we're going to talk about today is, uh, is how, how do you get a right understanding of grace? Uh, how, do you, how do you get a right understanding of grace? Because my understanding is that when you, when you understand, when grace becomes more than a word, what happens is that it helps you to suffer less. Now, I, I know uh, that there are a lot, of, a lot of pain points in life. We'll, we'll talk about some of them this morning. Uh, but I want to talk to you about one of them that I know that you struggle with because I struggle with it. And I think that it's just something that goes along with being a human being. And it's this, it's disappointment. Do you have any idea why uh, you get disappointed? Do, do you know that about yourself? Do you, know why, do you know why disappointment comes into your life and it causes you so much frustration and you're disappointed about however many things you're disappointed about in your life? Maybe you're sitting next to the person you're disappointed with. I don't know. Don't elbow them right now, okay? Don't do that. Uh, disappointment, I, I don't know if you know this, uh, disappointment... It comes from your expectations. It's a, it's a function of what you expect. Uh, because here's how, here's how disappointment works. It's like a zero-sum game. Do you know what I mean when I say a zero-sum game? Here's zero, and then here's maybe you're below zero, and you have to work your way all the way up to zero. Someone else's expectations just starts at zero. Uh, it's a zero-sum game. Let me see if I can give you an illustration of that so that makes a little more sense. Let's say that you share uh, a bathroom with your sister. And uh, you know that God always meant for the toothpaste to be squeezed, how? From the bottom up, right? You know that's how God intended from the beginning of creation for the toothpaste tube to be squeezed. And yet you live in a house with your sister, and she somehow did not get that memo. And so when she comes in, and what she does is she walks into the bathroom, and she takes the tube of toothpaste. And what does she do that drives you nuts, right? Right in the middle, all over her toothbrush, right? You walk in, and you go, what's wrong with you? Why can you not squeeze the toothpaste the way God always meant the toothpaste to be squeezed? What's your problem? What, what is wrong with you? And so you have this conversation in love with your sister, 
and you say, do you think you could learn to squeeze the tube of toothpaste from the bottom up? Now, here, here's the thing I know about things like that. Those are habits, right? You do it without thinking about it. And it's hard to change a habit. So your sister says, okay, I'll learn how to squeeze the tube of toothpaste the way God always intended from the bottom. So now you have a, a zero expectation for you is that you squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom. That's zero for you. Like, you don't get cookies for that and gold stars. It's just what you're supposed to do. So your sister comes from like negative 30 and she just kills herself and works and works and finally she gets to the day where, you know, three days in a row she has not squeezed the toothpaste from the middle and gotten toothpaste all over the counter that you had to wipe up again. And she comes to you and she's like, look, hey, check me out. I squeezed the tube of toothpaste the right way. And you look at her and you're like, what, you want me to give you a gold star? You're supposed to be doing that all of your life. What's wrong with you, right? <laughs> Expectations are a zero-sum game that we put on other people and ourselves. And expectations are where disappointment comes from. Here's, here's how it works. Let me, let me explain how it works. You have this thought about what you think things ought to be like. You can, like, you can use the toothpaste or you can take some big important thing. And what happens is we often don't communicate the things that we're thinking to the people around us we just assume they ought to know because they are near us. And so they ought to do what is in our brain that we haven't clearly communicated to them. And so we put out there this expectation uh, that then we want them to meet. And then they don't meet that expectation. And then we are frustrated and we are disappointed. And then as a result, we suffer. That's kind of the psychology of how your expectations come. So if you wanted to change that, you could just get rid of your expectations and you wouldn't have frustration. I promise you, you could trace back all of the frustrations that you feel. Just pause, go backwards a little bit, and you'll find out that it came from something that you expected. Now, this is the case in everything. Uh, you get married and uh, you think at some point, He's going to remember to put the seat down. <laughs> right? W women, women tend to do this more than men. I know I'm picking on the women here. Uh, but women tend to say, I'm going to marry him, and he'll change. Right? In fact, that may be why you got married, because you think that he'll change. Uh, you're a parent. It's no different. You have expectations for your kids. I think that's probably in some ways the way it needs to be because we're trying to raise them and teach them things and help them be better. Uh, but you have expectations from your kid and they don't meet them. And, and you know, if you're, if you're honest, if you're an honest parent, at some point you thought, is there a return policy on these children? Can I, can I return them to the store? Does that, because your expectations are not being met and you're frustrated and there's suffering in your family. Uh, you may have been here in, at the beginning of the year, if you, remember, you were here, we did this series called Do-Over, and we talked about how you, the grace of God can help you have a do-over in your life in all different areas, physically and emotionally, and maybe, maybe you were there, and you thought, you know, 2017, I'm going to get in shape, and so you went home from that day, and you ate a salad, and then you went to the gym once, or you went for a walk, and you looked in the mirror, and you didn't have six-pack abs, you're like, what's what's going on? Or you tried to be more uh, emotionally whole and forgive somebody and you 
tried to forgive him. You forgave him once, and then it, the emotion came back, and you're like, I'm mad at him still, and I don't know what to do. And you had all of these expectations. See, that, what happened? You had a thought. Uh, you had this expectation that you put out there. It didn't get met. You were disappointed. And as a result, you experienced some suffering in your life. That's just kind of how it works. And that's one of the reasons that we give up. And we kind of we go, listen, I'm done, because you just can't, you're tired of having all these expectations, and you're tired of the suffering. Well, now, grace is no different. If you have the wrong expectations about what grace is, if you don't understand what it's meant to do by God in your life, then you'll be frustrated, and it'll be doubly frustrating, doubly frustrated because you believe God is in this, and so God must have ordained this, and when it doesn't work out the way that you expected that grace was supposed to work out, then you'll be doubly frustrated. In fact, a guy named David Siemens, he said this. He said, there are two, um, two things that, that cause people who are following Jesus or are trying to follow Jesus or want to be a Christian, and I would say most of you are here today because that's, you fit in that category in some way. If you're not, we love that you're here. Uh, but there are two problems that, that cause Christians suffering. He said one is, and we're talking about this today, the other one we'll talk about next week. One is that we fail to understand the, the realities about God's grace, what it means and how to work it into our life. That's the first one. And then the second one we'll, we'll talk about next week is that then we fail to give that grace out to people around us. And we don't quite know how to do it and how to interact in a graceful way. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that this morning. Now I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read a passage of scripture. It's our practice to do that. We read the scriptures out of respect for God's word. We'll put it on the screen. You can follow along if you have a Bible. But here's what I want you to do. Uh, if you would, could we, it's a very short passage. This is Jesus speaking here in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if we could read this all aloud together. Okay, you ready? This is Jesus' words to you. Here we go. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this next is a, is a uh, translation from the message version of that very first verse there. Read it out loud. Ready? Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, if you're going to learn, if you're going to understand what grace is and not put onto it all these expectations that you have, uh, built up in your own mind, then what I, what I know needs to happen is that you need to see God's grace in action. And the place that we go as Christians to figure out what God's grace looks like in action is the person of Jesus. Because what happens is you have your concept of what you think grace is, and there's, that's often contrasted with what God intended, and they're not always the same thing. Because what happens is you have a dictionary that you apply to the word grace. You fill in your meaning with that. And what if you don't have the correct one? Uh, you might think that uh, grace means something like, be nice. You know, it's kind of, that's a word that we put in the category for little old ladies. You know what I mean? Like little old ladies are nice. I don't have anything against little old ladies. Little old ladies have a lot to teach us. But we put them in that, so that, that makes it irrelevant to us. It just means be nice. Oh, isn't he nice? You know, that's what we're doing. Uh, or you might think that grace means that you're non-judgmental, and by that, what you mean is 
you turn a blind eye when you see anything anyone does, and it's just not your place to say anything, and I will just do my thing, and you do your thing, and we will, uh, you think that's what grace is. You don't, you don't look at anything or assess or any of that. Or sometimes, especially Christian people, think that grace is something that you get from God that makes God not mad at you anymore. Uh, it's almost like this is the summer, you know, it's just kicking off this weekend, and uh, people will go to water parks, like we take our kids to the Seven Peaks Water Park, and when you go in, I, I don't remember how they do it, but different parks do it differently, you either get a, a wristband or they'll give you a stamp. Now, what's that for? When you go out of the park, they look and they see if you have the stamp or the wristband, and then they let you back in, right? So some Christians think that grace is this thing that you get from God, so when God decides he's angry at you, he looks at the stamp on your hand that you got, oh, I forgot, I'm not mad at you, it's all good. Uh, or other Christians, I grew up hearing this, it's actually a great definition of what grace is, G-R-A-C-E, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense, I can get everything, and, and that's all, that's absolutely the truth, but what happens is grace ends up being this concept up here somewhere, right, up here in the, in the air, and what we need is for grace to come down into our life, to come down into where we hurt, to come down into where we sin, to come down into the pains and, and difficulties that we have with other people. That's the place that we need grace. And if we don't have the right understanding then, of grace, then we'll be frustrated and we'll suffer. Uh, now, when you're going to uh, have grace, now grace is, grace is God's idea, so we Again, we, we look to Jesus to try and understand what grace is. Now, let me, uh, let me give you uh, some, some theology, okay? Uh, it's not super heady here, but I think you can, you can, you can get this. Uh, in the way we think about and the way Christians understand God. When we talk about God, in fact, we sang about it in the song there, we talk about God as a trinity, meaning God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the word trinity, if you search the Bible, you're not going to find the word trinity. It's a, a word we uh, use to try and describe what we see God described as in the Bible. So at the very beginning, creation, Genesis chapter 1, says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And that language of God as a spirit weaves its way all the way through the scriptures, all the way to the very end. Um, we also see uh, that God's referred to as a father, a parent who loves in the right kind of way. So the psalmist talks about how God is a father to the fatherless. Uh, Jesus teaches us to pray. How? How do we pray? Our what? Our father, right? Uh, and that's woven, that's another theme, woven all the way through the scriptures. And then we see that Jesus, uh, that, that Jesus is the, the expression of this, but that God is the Son, um, referred to in the Psalms and then all the way in the life of Jesus. So God the Father, uh, God the Spirit, God the Son, God three in one. Now you may say, well, that's like this big concept. How do you get your head around that? Well, it's our attempt to try and understand the mystery that is God. If I can put God into words that I can fully understand, I made up that God, right? If you can put it all in words, put it all in a nice little package, and here you go, this is God, boop, 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 boop. You just made up that God. So what we're trying to say is God, is God is more than we can understand, but God accommodates himself to us and puts on flesh and blood and moves into our neighborhood. The, the writer to Hebrews says it this way. He says that when you see Jesus... He's the, he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the, the shining example of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being. In other words, when you, when you want to know what God's like, always look at Jesus because God is like Jesus. He's the son. So Jesus is uh, grace in action. John said he's, 
that Jesus was full of grace and truth. So here's, here's where we get grace. Here's where we get an understanding of what grace is and how our definition changed. We watch what Jesus did, and then we begin to understand what grace is. Now, what did Jesus do? Well, uh, Jesus did a number of things. You see him repeat these things, but what Jesus did is he would accept the person who was the outcast. Now, you, you, uh, you like that idea because you've always heard that Jesus is like that, and you like to believe that you're like that, and I like to believe that I'm like that, frankly, that, yeah, I accept people that no one else does, and I'm so accepting. And, uh, and, and if we're all honest, we don't, <laughs> and I don't, but Jesus did. Jesus always accepted the outcasts. There was a, a group of people who were known as the lepers. lepers. Leprosy is still an actual disease. What happens is it eats away at the nerve endings. Your fingers fall off. You lose feeling in your fingers, feeling in your toes. Your nose falls off. Um, and it's a disfiguring disease, and uh, you wither away to a non-human being, non-recognizable human being. Well, it was also kind of a category for any skin disease, and it was a very religious society that Jesus lived in. And you had to go, if you got a, a, a lesion on your skin, say, you would go to the priest, and the priest would look at you, and he would say, you know what, that is a, a unclean disease, and you can't be around and contaminate anyone else. So what developed over time was they would have these leper colonies, and all these people with all these different weird skin diseases would be put in these leper colonies where they were ostracized from everyone, and they were literally outcasts. If you'd been declared unclean, you'd been uh, declared a leper when you went out in public, you were supposed to shout out so that you wouldn't contaminate anyone, unclean, unclean. Think about what that would feel like, right? So it's very fascinating. Jesus, when he sees people with leprosy, see, everyone else would avoid those people like the plague. I mean, they're outcasts. Very moving scene where Jesus would go, in one case in the Gospels, Jesus goes up to one of the lepers, and this is not, not by accident. The writer puts in it and says, and he touched him. Now, you've you got to understand all the dynamics behind that. Everyone around would have probably went, oh. And if you've ever worked with populations of people who we would consider outcasts, like homeless people. I was in this, uh, Friday's my day off, and I was in the city on Friday, and I saw, like you see when you go to the city, homeless people. And walking down and everyone's got their shopping bags and there's this guy just sitting there dirty with a sign everyone's walking by him like he's a non-entity a non-human like he doesn't even exist and if you work with uh, populations like that one of the things you discover very quickly is that they smell if you've ever been to a homeless shelter you worked in a homeless shelter uh, you don't have access to sanitation so you stink you know what we do when someone stinks we go oh my you smell that guy? We move away from the outcast. You know what Jesus did? Welcome. One of the other things Jesus did is he, uh, he spent time with the nobodies and the outsiders. Uh, <laughs> he always even told stories. Uh, again, this whole religious complex that he was a part of and in. And that kind of dictated how society worked and functioned and who was in and who was out. And Jesus was always spending time with the wrong people. In fact, he would tell stories about the wrong people. One of his most famous parables is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you miss, and you and I miss when we read that, the meaning behind that and what Jesus was trying to convey. 
Because when, even when you hear the phrase Samaritan, what you think is, even if you're a non-religious person, oh, yeah, yeah, someone who helps people. Well, here, it would have been like Jesus telling a story about the nice boy from ISIS. Because in that day, when you went, if you were a good Jew and you went to the border of Samaria to avoid contact with the people that everyone considered the outsiders and the nobodies, you would come to the border of Samaria and you would try, instead of going through, which you could have done, you would travel around so you could avoid contact with those people. And Jesus spent time with the outsiders because he's grace in action. That's what God's grace does. Probably the most uh, poignant demonstration of God's grace, though, is when he dies on the cross. We know from our perspective, when we understand the cross, that, that Jesus dies on the cross for his enemies. And we like to look at it and go, oh yeah, those bad people who killed Jesus, that wouldn't have been me. I, I sometimes like to think of myself as I read the stories of Jesus' life, and I like to put myself in the story and imagine, what would I have done? And on Good Friday, we talk about how Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, and uh, there he, Pontius Pilate says, who should I let go to you? Barabbas, this criminal uh, that was, we know has committed crimes against the state and people and killed people, or should I let Jesus? And the people shout, Barabbas! And I like to think that I would have been like the guy on the side going, oh no, Jesus is the right guy. Listen, if I'm honest, I would have been in the crowd going, Barabbas! And then when, G- when he said, what should I do with Jesus? I would have been the one shouting, crucify him! Because by my actions, I have done that. And if you're honest, you would say, I was the enemy too. But out of love, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the whole world, yours included. So I know grace is in action. You've got to make this personal, right? I'm... I'm the unacceptable person. I'm the nobody. I'm the outsider. I'm the outcast. I'm the enemy. And Jesus died for me. Jesus did that for me. Jesus did that for you. You, you have to personalize that. It, it's, it's God's disp- predisposition toward people to treat them with grace. God has already made up his mind how he's going to treat you. And it's grace. When I was uh, a kid growing up in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, in my elementary years, there was a lady in our church uh, named Sharon uh, Peterson. And Sharon, uh, I was probably nine or ten when I met their family, and there were four kids in the family, and one of the boys, James, was one week older than me, and so we just became friends, same age. And uh, I used to go over to their house, and um, we would get into their Vega. I don't know if you know how we have a picture of their green Vega. Like this, it literally looked like just like that. And uh, it was a three-speed green Vega, and we would get in after church, me and their four kids. I was plastered against the back window like, because <laughs> uh, that's all you could fit. And then you would get in, you know, <laughs> down the highway, three gear, three speeds. <laughs> I mean, that's, I, that sound is like emblazoned on my mind because of those trips I made to the Peterson's house. And I would, I would go to their house, and they lived in, uh, probably way back in the day, was a beautiful Victorian home that was really pretty much run down. And I found out later that there was some abuse in the home. The dad was just a really angry person. He was an alcoholic. But one of the reasons that I love to go to their house is because of the way that Sharon would treat me. 
I, I vividly remember I'd, I'd come into the kitchen down the stairs, and uh, she, she was not much taller than me, but she was just tall enough that she would lean over, and I, she would come up to me, and she would give me a kiss on the top of my head. I just vividly remember this. And then she would give me Kool-Aid. Now, that may not be a big deal to you, but I was not allowed to have Kool-Aid, right? <laughs> but she had a predisposition that when she saw me, she would treat me with love and kindness and a big welcome. This is what God's grace does to you. God is predisposed to be welcoming to you. Even if you're the outsider and the outcast and the enemy, this is God's predisposition to you. This is how God treats you. Because we see what grace is like by seeing Jesus in action. So Jesus gives us these beautiful words here in Matthew 11 that describes the heart of God and the grace of God and how we can enter into it. And he says this, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Now what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about the weights of life. And he's talking about those expectations that we lay onto ourselves. Now I don't, I don't know your world, I know my world. Uh, so I want to tell you about my world as a, as a pastor. Um, now I need you to know that I love what I do. I love that I have the privilege and the honor to walk with you through very difficult times in your life. Uh, I have the privilege and honor when someone dies to stand up and try and offer words of comfort and, and as, a, as a, an extension of you as the body of Christ to be present and to say that you're going to get through this and God's grace is going to get you through this. I have the privilege and honor to help people when they're trying to make life decisions. I mean, it's just an honor and a privilege to do what I do. But there are some really weird things about being a pastor. Uh, just some really weird kinds of weights. My dad, who was a pastor and a missionary for 50 years, when I was considering uh, being a pastor, I was like, is God calling me to do this or not? And my dad said, listen, son, if there's anything you can do in life and be happy, do that instead. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, dad, you know what you're talking about. And I, I understand now what he meant. <laughs> I get it. There's just some really unique kinds of pressures that come with, with the role of being a pastor. There, there are really uh, weird time kinds of pressures. Uh, one of them is that things are never done, and so work is never finished because people are never finished, and we're messes, and when you're a pastor, you're knee-deep in people stuff, and so work is never done. So one of my favorite things to do is to uh, mow the lawn. The reason I love to mow the lawn is not because I like to cut grass, but when I am done cutting the lawn, guess what? It's done. I can go, look, look what I did. I cut the lawn. It is finished now. You know, I, I I, I get to do this kind of a thing. Uh, uh, weekends are a really uh, weird kind of a thing. I hear other people talk about how they took a weekend. We went away for the weekend. And I'm like, oh, what's that like? I don't know what that's like. Because you? you're a pastor, you have to take time off to go on a weekend. You don't get 52 weeks. You can just go wherever you want. You, you, it doesn't happen that way. It's just a, a unique kind of a, a time pressure. Uh, it, it's weird. Most pastors move across the country. They move away from their networks, family, friends. Uh, like, for instance, Reed and Ariel Sapp, uh, Ariel's pregnant, and she's getting ready to have a baby in October, and they don't have their family here. So they don't have somebody to, they're not going to have somebody to hand the baby to and go, we're so tired, can you just take her overnight? Yeah, they, they don't have that. They don't have that. So we have to do that for them. Um, there, are, there are really weird emotional kinds of pressures that come with, uh, with being a pastor. I, I rarely get phone calls from people that they're calling me and they say, hey, I... Listen, I, I wanted to call you and tell you how awesome life is. 
and how awesome my life is going right now. I just want to call you and let you know how that is. I don't get those phone calls. Every, every out of a clear blue, that'll happen. But usually it's, my life's falling apart. My son's addicted. I don't know what to do. My marriage is falling apart. And it's these weighty, weighty emotional things uh, that, that come my way. It, it's it's kind of weird, but if, and anyone who speaks publicly has this kind of happen to them, but if I say something that offends someone, and usually it's, I didn't mean to, but they just took it that way, it publicly, uh, people will go, well, I'm leaving, because he said, brr, and I'm out of here. And, and I, I kind of think, well, would we do, do, we, do we do that with anything else? Like if you have kids at your school and the principal says something you don't happen to agree with on one particular subject, you don't go, oh, we're taking our kids out of that school, that jerk, err. You know, I, I, sometimes that happens, it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes it happens, and I, I kind of look around for the cameras, and I'm like, am I being punked right now? I mean, what? What's going on? Uh, it's a really weird thing because when you uh, introduce yourself to someone and then you tell them, because you know, one of those common questions we ask is, well, what do you do for a living? And I try to keep that as like the last possible thing I can tell someone when I don't know them. Because when I say, oh, I'm a pastor, I mean, all, it's about nine times out of ten, the person will have just cussed and then they will... <laughs> They will then apologize to me and be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, oh, I'm so terrible. Please forgive me. And they, they, I, I guess they think I'm like a roly-poly. I'll roll up and get squashed by the bad word. You know, like, I can't handle that. And so, so what happens is it's very hard to have normal kinds of relationships because this thing about being a pastor, unless they're a, a really committed Christian, and then they, you know, oh, you're a pastor. Uh, this gets kind of hung over any kind of relationship, so it's just kind of hard to develop those weird things. I, when I first met my neighbor uh, across the street, moved in, and I told him I was a pastor, he just, his eyes got really big. <laughs> and I can tell, and our interact tried to be like normal, and hey, how's it going? But he's like, oh my God. <laughs> there are these really weird things that go along with, with being a pastor. <laughs> I love Chuck. So, yeah, like that. Like you say things like that. That happens, right? So this guy, we'll, we'll keep on going here. We'll keep on going. So this guy named Tom Rayner, uh, he did a study, and he just asked us, kind of your average church board, he said, hey, just tell me, what are the expectations that you have for a pastor, and what's the minimum time you think it ought to take? And he added it all up, and what he found, just a normal people, not with, you know, you know over-the-top expectations, that in order to meet the, the time requirement expectations that uh, a pastor would have to work 20 hours a day, six days a week, just to meet the minimum. Now, listen, I, I'm not telling you that so you can feel sorry for me. I'm simply saying I know my world. And what that does inside of me is that then I have these expectations I place on myself. Well, I should be more available to people, and, but I should be available to my family. Do I, who do I pick right now? Oh, maybe, I, maybe I should listen a, a little more. Maybe I should make a different decision because that, you know, so I, and this weight just kind of comes as a burden. And here's what I know. Your life and your job has pressures that you have too, and you have these expectations that you place on yourself. And, you know, maybe I, I need to be more patient, and that becomes like something you put on yourself. I need to be slower to get angry, and you put this expectation I need to be kinder, and, and just, I mean, you just have this list of things that you put on yourself, and these weights, and you kind of become like, I found this picture that kind of describes what we feel like, uh, it's like, 
I think I can put one more thing on, the, on my burden, right? I can put one more thing right here on my back. And then, we be, then we're afraid we'll be like these old women in this picture right here. It's like they've been carrying this burden all of their life. And here's what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, those of you who have expectations you've put on yourself and expectations have been put on you by other people and it is now feels like a crushing burden to you, come to me and I will give you rest. Not, I'm going to add one more pressure onto you. I'm going to add one more thing that you're not doing. I'm going to add one more measure of guilt onto you because you're not quite good enough yet and you need to do just a little bit more and then I'll accept you. No, no, I'm not going to put the expectations on you that other people are putting on you. My, and he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, a, a yoke um, in, in Jesus' day had a, a several meanings. One was when a rabbi, who was the people who interpreted the scriptures in Jesus' day, when the rabbi would interpret the scriptures, it was known as his yoke. And when you wanted to learn from this rabbi, you would come under his yoke, under his teaching. And it came from a, a farm thing. You know what a yoke is. We've got a picture of, of some oxen here. And the stronger, more mature oxen would teach the younger, less experienced oxen how to pull. And so you would yoke the two of them together, and that, that, that's how you would learn to do something you didn't know how to do, because you'd be yoked to somebody. But it also has the meaning of a scale. And what do you do with a scale? You weigh things, right? Jesus is saying, take the way I weigh things. I don't weigh things the way that you weigh things. And when you do that, you come, and I'm gentle, and I'm humble of heart, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I will teach you a different way of going through life that's based on grace, where you don't feel the pressures, and you can take the pressures off of your back, and you can learn a different way of weighing your life. Listen, if you figured out how God weighs things, and you let that be the driving force of your entire life, that one thing alone would dramatically alter the rest of your life. Now, I think the place that we see the grace of God in action is we see the people that Jesus spent time with and who he ate with. Uh, he would eat with the wrong people. He'd eat with the outsiders, and he would always get criticized for it. People would say, Jesus, you're, you have the wrong friends. And he ate with this guy named Zacchaeus once. In fact, I learned a little song when I was a kid, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as my Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house today. You'd sing the little song. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. You hate people in the IRS, right? Take, it's like the IRS and a used car salesman and a congressman all rolled in one. That person is a tax collector. And you're like, I don't like that he was the wrong guy. And Jesus ate with him. See, in that day when you ate with somebody, you were saying, I want to be your friend, and I want us to have a relationship, and I want us to be close. At one point, a woman came in on one of the meals, and she was a prostitute, and she came in, and she wet Jesus' feet with her tears, and she wiped it with his hair, and, and, and the religious people who were like, yeah, you can't do that. That's bad, Jesus. Good people don't do that. Good, good Christians don't do that, Jesus. He said, you don't understand. She, she knows what she's been forgiven. And so she's, she's, doing this, she's doing this out of love. And Jesus welcomed those people to his table. 
see, Jesus' grace in action. So you need to understand that what Jesus does is he welcomes you to his table. When you came in, you had this little cup on your seat. I want you to take that little cup. And these, uh, these contain the elements of what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, and I'd invite you to tear open the top and take that bread out on that little wafer and hold that wafer. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was having a meal with his disciples. In other words, he said to them, listen, I want to be close to you, and I want to have a relationship with you. And he was taking what was the, the Jewish Passover meal and having that with his disciples, and he was giving a sign of who, when he, when he ate with anybody, he's giving a sign of who was welcome. See, the, the nobodies, the outsiders, the outcasts, the wrong people, the bad people, the broken people. He ate with all of those people. That means that he'll eat with you. That means that you can have the grace of God. So instead of us uh, just taking these little elements and going, oh, that was just, I, I want you to imagine that you're at a table with Jesus, and this is, this is representative of the table, Jesus, the, the relationship he wants to have with you. And you even take this wafer and you would break it and remember that Christ's body was broken for you, his enemy. He did it anyway. You take it and eat it and be thankful. And then in that meal with his disciples, Jesus had this cup and he took the cup and he said, this, this represents my blood. That's for the forgiveness of sins for you and for the whole world. And would you understand that when Jesus invites you to his table, he's inviting you to be forgiven? And would you take and drink this and be thankful that Christ died for you? I invite you to stand with me. We're going to pray. Um, you're invited to the table, always. Um, and we're going to talk about this next week because where the rubber meets the road for grace is then how do you, how do you be gracious to people? We'll talk about that. But, but when Jesus does something for us, he's not just doing it for us so that we don't have to do anything. He's also demonstrating how we go about things. And so uh, I would ask you to consider in the next seven days finding someone and inviting them over to your home, not a restaurant. Because I, I think we're so not used to that anymore. When I was a kid, that was not the case, but it almost conveys the same meaning. If you want something in your home, man, you're like, I want to be, I want to know you. And just invite them over, and uh, somewhere in the conversation, if you want, they want to bring something so you don't feel like you have to put on this huge spread, it could be pizza, whatever. Somewhere in the conversation, just ask, hey, uh, what are the burdens that you're carrying and how could I help? And then you, it's like you, you push out the table that you're invited to from Jesus to somebody else. You make it a little longer and a little bigger and set another place so someone else can sit there with Jesus. We'll talk about that more next week. But let me, let me pray for us right now.
Um, God, we're the people who walked in the room uh, with a load of expectations on our back. Some of them we put on ourselves. Some of them have been put on by other people. And we don't, uh, we don't know how to take them off. We don't know how to live without those things on our back. So we want to come to you because you're gentle and humble of heart. The burdens that you put, the things that you lay on us, they're easy and they're light. And you have rest for our souls, and so we need that. We don't want grace to be a word. We want it to be a reality. We want it to be a moment-by-moment reality that we understand what you think of us, not how we feel about us, is the truth. So um, we receive now what you give to us, rest for our souls. We say thank you, all God's people said. Amen. Uh, there are people around you that are holding out their hands, and that's, uh, as we leave, we always give a blessing. If you'd like to receive that and you're comfortable with that, great. If not, it's okay too. Just receive this blessing. May you know the love of God for you that doesn't put on burdens like you put on burdens. And you know you're sent out to love God, to love people, and to serve the world in his name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. See ya.